it's finally here, man. I can't believe it, but holiday season is upon us, but that usually means for a lot of us, some additional stress. You've got the stress of travel, of work, of weather, but then there's the financial stress and there's an old saying in the South. There's no stress like money stress. And if that's got your family stressed out, man, go to savewithbruce.com. Don't put Christmas on a credit card. Find out how easy it is to get rid of all that credit card debt, get a lower monthly payment and skip your next two house payments. That's right. No payments in December or January. You're done until February 1st and come February. How much money will you be saving every month? 500, 600, 700, 800. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. But if you need some extra Christmas cash and you've got some credit card debt, or you just like a cheaper monthly payment on your mortgage, we can get you the cash you need and make life fast and easy. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. So what are you waiting for? Go to savewithbruce.com right now. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. What a rib? No, you have a There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. You, Bruce. Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard, damn it. Okay, Bruce Pritchard, damn it. I like that. Can we make that the new name of the show? Bruce Pritchard, damn it. Damn it. I like the damn it in there. Well, I I don't know why you're damning it. Uh, You had a good Thanksgiving yesterday, and, and today we're back to our regularly scheduled programming. Hopefully last night you enjoyed... Your new, I guess it's your second annual Thanksgiving tradition, a Survivor Series watch along from 1988. If you haven't already, check it out in the archives at somethingtowrestle.com. But man, I'm excited. We get to cover a topic that I've been looking forward to covering from the beginning, Survivor Series 1993. Well, you know, it was a strange year. There was a lot of shit going on. And as we get into this, it, it felt like a lot of things that we're, we have covered before individually, but not ever together at the same time and how all the gaga and the bullshit going on in the wrestling business and particularly uh, with us in Titan Sports at the time, uh, how it affected everything in one and one show really getting affected bad. Well, I'm really excited about this one because when you and I first talked about doing a podcast. I said, what do you think would be the best episodes? And I had some opinions of what I wanted to hear as a fan, but you kept coming back to man survivor series 93. What a story. Nobody knows the whole story. And you and I did what we would call a practice episode, you know, a demo of sorts. And we wanted to just sort of have a dry run. You and I talking through wrestling topics and get our timing down and get familiar with one another, et cetera, et cetera. And we never aired it. And I'm, I'm not even sure that either one of us still have a copy of it, but it was certainly good practice. And now over two years later, nearly two and a half years later, 
We're finally sitting down to talk about Survivor Series 1993. This went down uh, 25 years ago, man. November 24th, 1993 at the Boston Garden right there in Boston, Massachusetts. And even as a little kid, I knew that Boston was a big town for the WWF. We know that New York is the home market. Where does Boston fall? Number two, number three, number four. Not saying now, but I'm saying when you came into the company, say 87. I'd say it was, it was Madison square garden. Then it was long Island, uh, Nassau County Coliseum, Boston and Philadelphia. And then, then you go to Baltimore and so on and so forth. But those were the, those were the top spots, man. Boston, because it also had the new England sports network that we did television out of there. And we used the tapings out of Boston for primetime wrestling and all American and things like that. So it was, yeah, it was New York, both. Both buildings in New York, Long Island and Madison Square Garden, and then Boston and Philadelphia. Those were the top four. Throw Baltimore in there for a top five. And Meadowlands uh, were the main. The, those were the big Those were the big events in the Northeast. Well, this is a big event here. You've got $180,000 in ticket sales. Uh, attendance for the event is 15,509 fans. Now, that sounds really strong to me, but I found in my research, this is actually the lowest attendance for a survivor series since 1989. Uh, the pay-per-view buy rate is also down. It's only a 0.82 down from a 1.4 the prior year. So it fell off a cliff and it was a million by short of what survivor series did two years prior in 1991. So you can start to see the decline in business. Uh, survivor series 93 is the first WWF pay-per-view ever to have a buy rate under a one in history. So the show on pay-per-view did a $2 million gross roughly Bruce. You've been with the company, you know, you came on when they were hotter than ever in 87, uh, 88 was what it was. 89 is the hottest year ever 90. You tried some new things with warrior business dipped a little bit. 91, it comes down quite a bit. 92 more of the same but 93 it feels like oh no is that fair to say internally inside the office i don't know that it was oh no it was certainly oh no it's not lex because we were in a period of vince really trying to have that replacement for Hulk Hogan. He was, he was looking for, you know, for so many years and we did things. What would you do if it were Hulk? And Lex Luger was the anointed one for, especially during this time of God damn it. He's the guy. And he just wasn't living up to the potential. He, he wasn't drawing people. They weren't clamoring to see more of Lex Luger. They weren't cheering him and going banana when he came out. So it was, Vince wanted, by God, I'll show you. And we kept pushing Lex. And, and this was about the time though, where the doubt, you know, the doubt started to come in because we, we did SummerSlam and that was what it was, but Vince wasn't ready to put the championship on him. And, uh, now we're, we're sitting there going, boy, he didn't, didn't come out of that well. And I don't know if this is the guy. So there were doubts. Did you, I mean, obviously lean times are ahead for the company. 
you know, when you first come on, you guys are selling out arenas and, you know, it almost feels like you could run stadiums at different times. And, and you certainly thought about it with WrestleMania seven or a couple of years removed from that. Um, but you're not quite yet running high school gymnasiums, but that's not too far away. Did you start to get a little nervous or is this business as usual for you? Not for the company, for Bruce Pritchard. Hmm. It was business as usual for me because I was in it and I was, I was deep in it. And also I understood the limitations and the limitations were Vince did not want to bring on a lot of new talent because of the impending trial. Vince did not feel that it was fair to the talent to say, I'm going to bring you in. I don't know what's going to happen with the outcome of this United States uh, federal government trial. Um, so we were told, here's the players you have, here's what you have, make it work. And every once in a while, we might be able to bring somebody in who, who understood that was really ready to come in, but those were few and far between. We didn't have the latitude to just go out and hire people. If you hired someone new, that was, took a lot, took a lot of time. And it cost money that we just didn't really have to spend at the time. It was every dollar had to be accounted for. So Meltzer reported in the uh, October 11th observer, the world wrestling federation survivor series on November 24th of the Boston garden may have achieved the fastest major arena sellout in North American pro wrestling history tickets for the card. The first pay-per-view show ever in Boston area and the final pro wrestling event at the 16,000 seat Boston garden were all sold out with the exception of a few badly obstructed, obstructed view seats about 90 minutes after they were put on sale to the public at 11 AM on October 1st, the event was sold out before any of the matches were officially announced. And part of the reason for the fast sellout was that the pre-sale tickets stemming from a mailing the WWF sent to people on its mailing list, which are largely magazine subscribers and others who send in any kind of letter topped 8,000. Perhaps the success will bring back mailing lists as a tool in promoting shows. So before we talk about the mailing list, it is interesting that the buy rate is down uh, and attendance is lower, but then you see it sold out so fast and you realize, well, attendance is lower because it was a smaller building. And that, that's true. I mean, clearly when you're selling out your tickets in 90 minutes, you could have sold more. You just didn't have the ability to, you didn't have the capacity for it. But this is the last major show at the Boston Garden. You worked that building a lot. Chat me up. Your favorite Boston Garden memories. <laughs> My favorite Boston Garden memory was refereeing a match between the Hart Foundation and the Rougeos. People in Boston used to freeze oranges and bring them to throw at the, the wrestlers. And so you get hit in the head with, with frozen fruit. But Jim Neidhart was in a camel clutch and Raymond Rougeau had him in the camel clutch. And my nose is I'm nose to nose with Jim Neidhart on the mat. And Neidhart says, move. And I leaned back, basically just scooted back on the mat and a ice pick that had been thrown from somewhere. Neidhart caught it out of the corner of his eye, stuck right in the ring, right in between us. Had I been there, it definitely would have hit me. So 
A lot of fond memories about Boston Gardens. Working there in the summer, the walls would actually sweat. It was so fucking humid in there. But the atmosphere, the that audience was magical. You know, it was one of those magical old wrestling buildings that you had to work and you had to you had to experience. Let's talk about the mailing list here. You know, we've we've mentioned this before briefly. But you guys were, uh, were really utilizing this a, a couple of years prior. Uh, I remember my mind being blown when you revealed to me the real reason that you guys did a letter writing campaign after earthquake squashed Hulk Hogan, you had tugboat go on TV and say, Hey, send your get well wishes to Hulk Hogan. And it wasn't until we started doing this that I realized what an idiot I was. I thought that was just to give kids something fun to do, to write to their hero. Nope. You were building a mailing list genius. And And it was something good for kids to do by God. Sure, Write a letter. Come on, dude. It was all, I wrote one. I mean, come on. I needed the Hulkster to come back. It was, it was such a great angle for me, but I never even considered, Hey, there is a business strategy here. They're building a mailing list. And you know, back in the day, that's what a lot of people did. I, I remember ECW had a mailing list and they would send you this little paper catalog so you could pick some of their home video releases. And you guys would send, you know, the merchandise catalogs where Stephanie strutting that ass in a new t-shirt or a new hat or whatever, but here you're doing it. And this is, you know, obviously been replaced by email to let people know about tickets going on sale. And apparently it was a huge success. How often did you guys use a mailing list? for ticket sales. Was this the first time or just the first time it was on Dave's radar because it was a major show? This was the first time for one of the big major events. We, we did it for all of our events. However, we orchestrated this for an on sale ticket and allowing the people that were a part of the mailing list that they would have the first, they would have the exclusive first pick of the tickets. The, theory behind it and what we were trying to test was announcing WrestleMania one year in advance, the location and tickets and everything and putting on, putting tickets on sale for WrestleMania the day after WrestleMania for the next WrestleMania, but letting people know that well ahead of time and that, Hey, here's, here's where we're going to be. And here's what we're going to do. You will be able to buy tickets the day after WrestleMania, uh, all you got to do is is go here. That was that was the internal plan. This this one worked, and this one was very successful. As, as said, it was like an hour or so that we sold out tickets um, with with just the mailing list. That was the only way we really informed people how they could get tickets. So that was the, the thing we wanted to try it out for WrestleMania and the other big events for pay-per-views. Were you, uh, were you surprised at how well it worked? A little bit because it was, it was early on and no matches had been announced. Nothing had been announced other than the survivor series in Boston. That was it. So that was encouraging that we could announce here, here we're going to have an event, but by God, you know, uh, don't have any matches. Don't know who's going to be there, but you can buy tickets now. And they did. They had faith in the brand and did it for whatever reason, even though business is down in 93, there are certain metrics you could look at and think, well, they're actually up a little bit. Let's take a look at those. Your average attendance in November of 92 
was 2,840 fans a year later in November of 93, it's 3,300 fans. So attendance is up 13.9%. Your average gate is up 7.7% going from 39,000 and change to around 43,000 in 1993. Uh, and your ratings are actually up just a little bit. You went from a 1.9 in November of 92 now to a 2.1 in November of 93. Um, what do you, how do you chalk this up? How do you reconcile this where it does feel like you're getting some confusing information? Obviously we can sort of tip the hat to the mailing list as that being a reason that it was very successful for selling tickets for this event, but it does feel like business is on the downturn. But when you look at a microcosm of the numbers, do they tell the true story or is it not really painting the accurate picture of, of where business is. No, it was telling the true story. I, for me, it felt like it had just maintained. There wasn't a lot of growth. It, it just was a, there was a sameness to it and there was just no growth. It didn't feel like the audience was eroding. You just weren't getting, you weren't getting those pops, you know, you weren't getting the, the, the jumps. So um, I don't know. It, 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 it felt like for that year, it was just the same. It was even keel. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on around the company. Uh, macho man, Randy Savage is still with the WWF, but Hulk Hogan is gone by this point. And there's a new program in town called WWF radio or radio WWF where good old Jr hosting the show. And we've talked about this before. I believe it was on our WrestleMania nine episode. Uh, maybe it was the Macho Man episode. I don't know. All the episodes are available at something to wrestle.com. Um, the co-host for this radio show on this particular day with Jr is Johnny Polo. Who's going to go on to be the future Raven. Uh, both of those guys have podcasts today. You should check out the Raven effect. And of course the Jim Ross report, but he's doing a, um, an interview here with Randy Savage and Randy gets all over Hulk Hogan. Uh, and Meltzer says this isn't a work quote. The most intriguing aspect of all this is that Hogan was asked a few days earlier to appear on the show, although never informed that Savage would be on or what subject matter was plan being planned for the show. Apparently there was a well laid out plan to ambush an unknowing Hogan with Savage's comments in a public forum. Hogan, who had done the same radio show two weeks prior, apparently had a premonition. Something was up since it was awfully quick to be asked back on to do a radio show for a company. He was no longer working for, or simply was busy and lucked into not being in a potentially embarrassing position. It should be noted. It was pretty obvious the way Savage, Jim Ross, and Johnny Polo were interacting during the segment that all three knew what was about to be said. Ross, before bringing Savage on as a guest, noted that he would be saying things that you won't believe and later made comments that some of the things he would be saying, you will be reading about tomorrow morning in the sports pages of your newspaper. Although at press time, no newspaper had acknowledged the interview. Although I suspect the comments to make the wrestling columns and the few newspapers that have them. It's clear from the television promotion of the show that Ross is working very hard to garner publicity for his radio vehicle. And a few weeks back, Ross was able to get the green light from Vince McMahon to be no more controversial on the show and talk about other promotions. So before we talk about what Jr. and Randy Savage actually talked about, 
chat me up about why this was a big deal to Jr. what opportunity Vince thought it represented and why McMahon, who normally never acknowledged anybody, that's always been his MO. When you're number one, you don't acknowledge number two. iPhone doesn't talk about Android. Chat me up here. Why did Vince okay this? And what was the value proposition for Vince McMahon's WWF to have this WWF radio show? There's more exposure, and Vince was looking to try and create something with through another medium and the radio show was produced by a guy by the name of Brad Saul, who had the radio network that we were on. Brad Saul was the one who founded the, uh, God podcast.com or some web talk radio, web talk radio, which is where I had my very first podcast. Really nice guy that ran out of Chicago and Vince wanted a, he wanted a radio show. He wanted something else. And also Jim Ross had come from Atlanta with his radio show. It was something more for Jim to do. Let him do radio, let him get out. Let's have a talk show and be controversial. Let us be the ones to break the stories and break the news versus the people that didn't work within the business. And were just reporting the gossip and rumor. So let's talk about it. Um, it's well known within wrestling that what Savage said on the show echo things he's been saying in the dressing room, dating back to the period shortly after his divorce in the summer of 1992. Hogan was very protective of McMahon whenever the subject came up in his publicity tour for Mr. Nanny. However, in an item in the New York Daily News gossip section last week, it said that Hogan would be meeting shortly with Ted Turner about starting up a new wrestling company, and it is believed the item wasn't planted by Hogan's side. Hogan did turn down an invitation to appear on WCW to plug his movie. Uh, and here's the comments from Savage. Have you heard the name Hulk Hogan, the five-time world wrestling federation champion Hulk Hogan became at one time, the biggest superstar in the history of professional wrestling. I personally used to look up to Hulk Hogan, but that was a big mistake. I really thought he was a friend, but he's definitely not. He's the worst prima donna I've ever met in my life. Hulk Hogan's ego went so far out of control that Hulk Hogan consumed Terry Bollea, which is his real name. Let's just say I've lost a lot of respect for Hulk Hogan, AKA Terry Bollea, both as a man and as a human being. That's an extreme understatement that I'm saying right there. A lot of people out there might be thinking it's professional jealousy, but putting professional jealousy aside, if there is any, which I'm not saying there is, I lost respect for Hulk Hogan big time. Number one, when he completely lied on Arsenio Hall, denying the use of anabolic steroids, except for the rehabilitation of an injury. And then Jr. asks the question, Savage, have you used steroids? And he acknowledges, yes, I have. I used anabolic steroids. And when I was on Arsenio Hall, I told the people I did, but they were legal. It's like putting poison in your body. And Savage is asked if he uses them now. No, I sure don't. Nobody does in the WWF, but at the same time I was asked about it. I told the truth. It was prevalent at the time, not just in wrestling, but in all sports, baseball, basketball, football, you name it. It was there. It was in the gyms and it was legal at the time. Before we keep rolling here, you guys have to talk with Vince about discussing steroids in public like this, especially given everything that's going on, right? The subject was out there. Everybody else was talking about it. That was part of Vince's strategy was rather than have everyone else talk about it, we'll talk about it and we'll get our story out and be honest about it. The 
probably one of the biggest things apparently that did hit the company was the Arsenio Hall show. And I think everybody goes back to that of when Hulk said he didn't use steroids on Arsenio Hall, that backlash hurt and stung for a while. There were a lot of people that were upset over that, particularly Randy Savage. I wasn't in the company at the time when that happened. So I don't know firsthand what that general feeling was at the time. However, I remember the after effects and, and Vince talking about, we're still reeling from those comments. Um, he wanted to get his story out there that we were going to do with the WWF radio. So Savage acknowledges that he knew Hogan was going to lie on the show and he encouraged him not to, and to just be honest and, you know, told him the world was more forgiving quote. He went on Arsenio hall and lied. He lied big time. He hurt himself. I'm not worried about him hurting himself though, but he hurt all of the world wrestling federation because like I said before, he was a leader. He was a big time, five time world wrestling federation champion. So when he talks, people listen. Fair to say, I mean, you're sitting there saying that Vince has said that, man, we're still reeling from those comments. It was a leader and it did. It absolutely reflected back on us. And I, I had been told Vince, everyone encouraged him just go out and tell the truth. And because when he did take them, it was legal and it was being prescribed by a doctor for him. So again, all of those different things that people forget about, um, it just was, it was not a good choice in my opinion and it hurt the company. I think it hurt Hulk for a while. And we were still getting through it, but Vince wanted to get his side out there and wanted to have it, a, a true voice versus going through a third party, like a reporter or another talk show like that. Let me ask you this. Realistically, we've never talked about this before, but had he not said what he said on Arsenio, what would have been different? I think that it would have blown over a whole lot faster because at that point, you take the gun out of their hand. When you say, yes, I did it. It was legal. Uh, here's why I did it. I don't do it anymore. Um, but yeah, I sure did. And it probably contributed to, to my size and it probably helped me in a lot of ways. Great recoup powers, all that other stuff. But yes, I did it. Now people can't go back and say he took steroid. Well, yeah, he did. He already admitted it. But now when you say, no, I didn't take steroids, you lied. All right. So people go back and now they have that to say, no, he's a liar. Fuck him. No, nope, he lied. And everything else, it, it, it kills the credibility go, going forward with everything else. And I believe the audience would have forgiven him and would have actually would have rallied around him because he was Hulk Hogan. I think he had that power. Let's talk about, um, what Randy's doing on screen because he's been uh, sort of in the ring, out of the ring. I'm an announcer. I'm a wrestler, but on the October 18th raw, he is involved in an angle to help turn crush heel. Uh, crush is rocking a beard and a mustache here. And he's got Mr. Fuji with him and he's yelling at Randy Savage about being jealous that crush has started to surpass him. So Savage gets in the ring and. They're going to try to talk about their problems, but as they leave the ring, crush jumps savage and then press slams him and drops him on the rail and savage juices 
this uh, directly from the observer uh, and from the mouth. And then crush destroys him in the ring with Fuji and Jim Cornette watching and uh, Yokozuna gives Savage a bonsai to finish the job. Now, most people remember crush came into the company as the third member of demolition and then eventually returned as a baby face, which you've talked about loving to shoot those vignettes over in Hawaii. He's crush or Kona crush, but he's going to leave again and now come back here as a heel. Why did you guys decide to turn crush heel and how in the hell did Randy Savage become a part of it? Vince wanted to get crush over. God damn it. Look at that big bastard. Why isn't he over? Randy took that as a challenge that I'll get him over. So Randy and, and Brian were really good friends. Randy felt that crush had all the potential in the world and just hadn't been programmed with the right guy yet. So Randy really felt that he could get crush over and wanted to work a program with him, which Vince obliged. Uh, thought maybe the, the shaka bra and the friendly smiling, you know, coconut crush and crush was too baby faces and too, too one-sided. So the thought, well, hell let's make him a he- big, nasty heel and put him with Randy and see if that'll get him over. But the genesis of it was Vince being frustrated that why isn't this big bastard getting over? And Randy said, I'll get him over. Okay, let's go. In real life, what was their relationship like? Crush and Savage. Uh, Randy and Crush were best of friends. They would travel together. They trained together and they, they were best of friends. So they were always, always talking about things and ideas. Fair to say that he was trying to, uh, help his buddy get over. He was, he definitely was. It that's was, why he volunteered. Cause he wasn't working full time at the time. It was announced in uh, mid October that Tokyo sports was reporting. The WWF is going to do a handful of shows in Japan in April of 94. Uh, and McMahon was reported as saying they wouldn't be working with a Japanese office, but would be using Japanese wrestlers. And he's going to be going to Japan for a press conference to make the announcement for the shows. And it's believed they're going to be indoor shows in like 10 to 15,000 seat arenas. Allegedly war and the WWF were putting back together their old working relationship. And, uh, Akio Sato was at the November 11th show at Cork and hall and announced that Tenru and the great Kabuki and one other war wrestler would be appearing at the Royal rumble. And Meltzer would freestyle. This is likely reciprocation for the war top wrestlers being booked uh, on top when the WWF tours Japan in April. Chat me up here. What can you tell us about you guys wanting to do some shows in Japan, but we're not going to work with all Japan or new Japan who are the big players. And instead we're going to do something with war. Well, we were looking and we had found out through other co-promotions with the Japanese promotions that so much of what they, what they do when you hear about these huge houses and, oh my God, there were so many people in the Tokyo dome or there were so many people here. What they leave out is that those shows for the most part are sponsored and the sponsor has the tickets and the sponsor normally gives the tickets away. The, show that we had in the Tokyo dome with uh, all Japan and new Japan. The sponsor was uh, an optometrist company 
They do eyeglasses, kind of like lens crafters here. Well, how you got your tickets was you had to go buy this lens crafter, whatever it was, the equivalent in Tokyo, do an exam, go in there to get your free tickets for the dome. And that's how you got tickets. Yes, they also sold tickets as well, but the majority of the tickets were dispersed by sponsors. And that's how people would get these for the big events. And we discovered this because we got into the muck of the financials of, well, hey, how are we going to split this gate? And I said, well, there is no gate because people don't buy tickets. They, they get their tickets through sponsors. The money comes from the sponsor. But they didn't want to share that sponsor money. So it was, it was a convoluted deal that Vince said, you know, we don't need a Japanese promotion to go in and do these. They wanted to see. And one of the big criticisms was from the wrestling fans in Japan was they didn't want to see WWF guys against New Japan or All Japan guys. They wanted to see the WWF product. Right. That they makes wanted sense. the shit they're seeing on TV. And they had been, we had always been told by, because you're working with another group, well, it's got to be against our guys or else you won't draw. So this was Vince's, again, another test to see, all right, let's see how we do on our own. We are going to need some names in Japan, but let's see how we mainly do promoting it ourselves with our angles and with our stuff and not using an all Japan or new Japan. I found this to be an interesting tidbit uh, in late October and early November. Sabu wrestles a couple of dark matches as a tryout for the company. In the first one, he wrestled Scott Taylor. Who's going to go on to be Scotty too hotty. And in the second one, he wrestles Owen Hart and Meltzer would say as a result of these tryouts, he was actually offered a job but wound up turning it down because it would have required him to give up his FMW gig in Japan, which allegedly was for more money. Chat me up. What do you remember about Sabu having a tryout here in 93? Because it is really, really hard to imagine him coming in and working for you guys full time and how that may have affected ECW because he was obviously their first major draw. Well, I don't even think ECW was, was a factor at this point. And no, I didn't mean that it would have taken him away from them. Then I just mean, how would ECW's future have been different if they had to go forward with no Sabu, because now he's working with you guys and what might that have looked like? You know, a lot of hardcore fans really loved, uh, Jinzei Shinzaki, who was wrestling for you guys as Hakushi and his match with Bret Hart. And you know, what would that have looked like? Sabu versus Brett Sabu versus Shawn Michaels. I know it didn't happen, but it is fun to think about. Sure. It is. And I think that Sabu would have been a hell of a addition to the roster at that time, but it was, I don't think that it was the right time for him. He did have his FMW stuff. He was making good money. And plus he was listening to his uncle who helped him make his business decisions. And his uncle, the Sheik, the original Sheik, uh, did not feel it was best for his career at the time to come into the WWF. So he stayed with Japan. I think he did all right between Japan and ECW all those years. But yeah, you're right. The, imagine the matches you could have had with Sabu and Sean, Sabu and Brett, Sabu and Undertaker. Just go on down the line. 
uh, it just didn't work out because again, the grass was greener on the other side. Chat me up. H- how was, um, how was Sabu received? Like what did, what did Vince think of Sabu? What did Pat think of Sabu? What was your take on Sabu? When you, this is a guy who's got a lot of underground buzz on the independence and Um, people are saying he's crazy and he's breaking these tables, but obviously he's got a legacy in the business through his uncle chat me up. What was the take inside the office about Sabu? Well, we had heard, and again, he, he didn't have quite that reputation at the time. I had just seen him because he looked like he looked like a younger version and a modern day version of the Sheik, And we didn't have that type of a heel. He looked menacing and he had a look of a, of a nasty heel that you could program with just about anybody. We were looking for talent that could work with Lex in that anti-American role. He had, he had talent, he being Sabu. So we just want him. I think everybody liked him from talent standpoint, but it just wasn't a fit at the time. I mean, this was, this was before there were any wild, crazy, silly stories about him out there. Glenn Jacobs is another guy whose name pops up. He was getting a tryout and he had been working in Florida independence as Sid powers. And, um, he worked in Memphis as doomsday. And I think he even was briefly the Christmas creature. Of course, we know Glenn Jacobs is going to go on to be Kane. Uh, but first, uh, well, I, mean, I guess eventually he's going to be the mayor too. It's worth mentioning. Uh, but first he's going to be an evil dentist a couple of years after this. Uh, what do you remember about early reporting on Glenn Jacobs tryout matches? He doesn't wind up getting a gig right here. Why was it not the right fit for him? Glenn was greener than grass. Glenn was greener than the Christmas tree outfit that he wore as the Christmas menace or whatever the hell he was Christmas creature in Memphis, Tennessee, which was hilarious. And every time that that picture would surface, we would kind of put it up around the, the dressing room for the Christmas creature, which was a green unitard, basically head to toe with tinsel and balls hanging from it. So it was, it was kind of funny. He was just very, very green. And Jerry Jarrett had promoted him as the second coming of Sid Vicious. He looks just like Sid and, and, and his work is as good. I, I, he, you could bring him in, put him right on top. So we brought him in, take a look at him. And he did have a great look. I mean, big bastard. But he was he was not ready for prime time, and we needed to get him a little more experience and get him kind of down on the farm before we were ready to bring him in. But we liked the size. There was potential. Plus, he was a super nice guy on top of that. So there was something there. Like, you know, we didn't have the developmental. We didn't have a performance center. We just had places like Memphis where we could send them or someplace that had a school and someplace that they could work every day. That's what needed to happen with Glenn at the time. Glenn was going to be one of the, and and he was actually in Boston to be one of the Knights uh, under the mask, which we'll get to here a little, in a little bit. I had that in my notes and I wanted to ask, and and I'm glad you went ahead and brought it up. Chat me up. Why didn't that happen? Because he just was, uh, he was just too green. 
just way too green. He he was not even a year in the business, I don't think, at that time. Didn't here's my didn't question. Really know. Why'd you bring him up there if you knew he was too green? Because we didn't know we needed bodies, put it that way. And we just didn't know. We didn't know how green he was even at that point. Rather have him than not have him, just in case. Correct. I guess. Yeah. Um, let's talk about house show business. Meltzer would report on November 1st. They debuted the B team shows this past week. And the reports were they drew poorly as in less than a thousand folks because they're working with local charities. A lot of normal costs of running a show are removed. The A team was loaded up shows and those drew poorly for their debut in Amherst, Massachusetts, only around 1500 fans, but they did excellent in Pittsburgh, 9,800 fans for a $119,000 gate. Pretty good in Baltimore the next day, and then fair in Hershey on Sunday to wrap up the weekend. The A-team crowds over the weekend ranged from poor in Detroit, only 1,700 fans, to really good in Nassau Coliseum, 10,300 fans paying 160 grand. This stuff is fascinating to me, Bruce, because it feels like you're either hot or not, depending on what town you're in. Well, that was just a case of which, t- which town was hot and what the hell was going on in those towns too. So it was, you've got geographical challenges that you have to work with. And frankly, some people in a WWE stronghold, they, they were buying everything and in, in, in not a particularly stronghold, they were kind of shitting on it. Is this, um, I mean, at the time you've got some guys who are still hangovers from, you know, the, the heyday when Hogan was on top and you know, you guys are selling out way in advance. And now you've got some rather anemic house shows. Any of those guys maybe being a little negative. I think that everybody gets negative when the houses are down and money's down, people start to point fingers and say, well, what the hell is going on here? It was the sign of the times. I don't know that WCW was doing any business. Nobody was doing business at that time, but we were the big dogs. We were most noticeable and it hurt. It hurt when you got out there because we're, we're booking everything that we've got on television. We're, we had brought Lawler in and thought, okay, this is going to help business some, um, and it just didn't. It, it was, it was a snake bit time of of year, and, and our ideas just weren't hitting. Let's talk a little bit about the A show and the B show difference. For years and years, we've heard that, well, if Hogan's on the card, that's the A show. But now Hogan's gone, so the A show here, the shows that are drawing better are being headlined by Bret Hart and Jerry Lawler. The B shows are being headlined by undertaker and Yokozuna. And those shows are only doing 800 to 1500 a night. How did you guys decide what was an a, what was a B as far as talent? We would just pretty much divide it up and look at it And the a shows. There's different ways to look at the A and B shows as well. The A show was usually a top market, like a New York, a Dallas, a Chicago, an L.A. And a B show would be a secondary market that had a smaller population. For example, uh, Louisville would be a B show. It's just because of the population. Um, 
so they would, you'd still want to give them a good card. You'd still want to give them the best main event you can. And it was take your two top, take your two top angles and issues and you split them up and one's going to the main and one's going to the secondary. If business is great at the time, then both of those shows are going to do fairly equal business. It's just a matter of population to draw from is what would determine the A and B town. But a lot of times it would just be two different cards, even it up and go. What? It wasn't like we had that. The big main attraction at the time, it wasn't, we just didn't have that. We, we were building, we were building Luger. We were building Brett. We were building undertaker and none of those guys were at the standalone top star, you know, mega star. Everybody's just going to come see them do whatever they want to do. That Steve Austin got to rock, got to undertaker got to, but, uh, they weren't there yet. We weren't there yet. I mean, do you remember anybody requesting, you know, back in the day we would hear where guys who were um, what we'll call underneath on the card, they would really want to be on the Hogan card. Does that even exist here for 1993 since he's gone? Is there a preference one way or another where guys think I want to be with on that card because if that guy's there, I'll make more money. Or is it just based on, you know, whoever their traveling buddies are, are there even requests like that? Not really during this time. They just want to be with their buddies for the most part. Let's talk about, um, Medusa here. Uh, she accepted an offer in November and comes into the company in December. And of course we know she's going to go on to be known as Alundra blaze. We haven't talked about Medusa a lot here on the show. Chat me up. How does she get on WWF's radar? Who was a proponent of signing her? And what do you remember about putting that deal together? I believe JJ Dillon put the deal together and, and got her in, but she had been sending tapes in for a long time. And that was another case of Paul Heyman getting me tapes and saying, Hey, Medusa's looking to make a move and do something different. So Vince wanted to, by God, get the women's division going again. And Medusa was the answer to that. Changed her name, did the Alunder blaze stuff. I went down to Tampa, Florida, shot a bunch of vignettes with her on her little pink Harley motorcycle. And we built her up as is the second coming. And as Kind of like Ronda Rousey is now. That's what we wanted to do with the Lunder Blaze back then. And build her up and did a lot of vignettes to, to bring her in. Also bringing in Bull Nakano from Japan so that she would have a big, nasty foreign heel to work with. And that we knew they would have great matches and something that people had not seen before in the women's division. That was a nice addition. When you guys... Uh, decide to sign her. Is this one of those? Let's fly her to New York and let her meet with Vince deals. I don't remember if she met with Vince or not. I remember, I remember going down and doing the vignettes. I did the vignettes by myself, um, in Tampa, but I don't remember if she came up and met with Vince or not, or if it was all done with JJ signed her and let's go. Bruce, I know we've talked about steroids quite a bit here on the show, but I do want to bring up that Newsday a Long Island based daily newspaper ran a three page story 
with a page one photo on the investigation of the WWF, of course, centering around the steroid story. And here's what Meltzer wrote. Actually, the biggest surprise in that story, which was released nationally on the wire services the next day and was the subject of an unfunny Saturday night live spoof that even evening was even prominently featured. Uh, talk to me about the Saturday night live skit. Nobody talks about this, but they sort of spoofed this and I don't even remember it. I don't either. What the hell? I, I don't remember the Saturday night live skit at all on the steroid trial. So that's not saying that they didn't do it, but I don't remember that at all. And at the time, everybody was doing something and writing something about us and, and steroids because everybody knew it was coming down. In early November, both the ring announcer, Mike McGurk and the television interviewer, Bonnie Blackstone were let go. And McGurk was told the company wanted to cut back on transportation expenses. We get lots of questions about Mike McGurk. Uh, any, any good stories about her you could share with us? Mike McGurk was the daughter of legendary wrestler and promoter in Oklahoma, Leroy McGurk and her, her, Sasha but Mike had put up rings and, and helped her father in the promotion business. So one day Vince tells me this was my first summer with the WWF. He says, uh, you ever work as a talent? I'm like, well, I've done, uh, a few seconds of color commentary, but I've done all the interviews. I do all the stand up interviews for the local towns. He says, how about play by play? And I said, nope, never done play by play. He goes, well, great. We're going to put you in, um, as play by play in Houston and for the, some of the, the cable properties. And I've got a, uh, got a surprise for you. Going to put you with a couple of, couple of unknowns, but they're going to be great. Duke, the Duke of Dorchester, Pete Norty. He's a character. You're going to love him. And Mike McGurk. Uh, she's never done anything like this. So you're going to have to carry her through it. Who the fuck's going to carry me through it? I had never done play by play in my life. So the only ones that I really have to base it on is, is I've got Paul Bosch who didn't really do play by play either. Paul just sold tickets for the next event. You got Jim Ross who I, I couldn't emulate. And then you got Vince. And so I was, well, WWM, I'm going to pattern myself after Vince and I had to work with, with Mike who had never basically spoken into a microphone before, much less be a color commentator analyst that no one had ever heard of or what credentials she had. So that was a challenge. And then shortly thereafter, we decided to make Mike our first female ring announcer, much to Howard Finkel's chagrin. She was a great ring announcer. Why do you think, um, you know, the time was, I mean, it was time to go do something else. When it was time for her to leave at, at this point, it was a cost cutting deal. She was only a ring announcer. The other ring announcers that we had were part of the ring crew were part of the production crew. So they were doing double duty. They had other jobs. Mike didn't have another job at that time. So that's why she was cut the same thing with Bonnie Blackstone. 
it was a cost cutting measure. Let's uh, let's switch and talk about Bonnie Blackstone. We haven't really talked about her before. Um, Joe Fowler was fired as an announcer, and Jim Ross would be taking over doing the face to face segments, and Raymond Rougeau would ultimately take over Bonnie Blackstone's spot doing the interviews. You were around for a little while when Bonnie was there. Any good Bonnie stories? Anything interesting you can share with us about Bonnie Blackstone? No, Bonnie would come in and do TVs and do a couple of the interviews. I had known Bonnie from my time at Global Wrestling. She was the wife of Joe Petticino, who used to do a pro wrestling syndicated television show highlighting all of the regional wrestling promotions. Bonnie was a sweet lady. She was a really nice lady and did a good job, but it was just a short-lived kind of experiment that Vince didn't feel was worth pursuing and and moving on. And then Joe Fowler, Joe Fowler was on a, um, it wasn't American Gladiators. It was another show like American Gladiators that I was watching. And I called Vince and said, hey, take a look at this guy. He could be, oh, I think he could be a pitch man for us, you know, in the Okerlund role. Or maybe he could even do play-by-play. I don't know, but take a look at him. So Vince and I are watching this show. We're both on the phone and I love him. Get him up here. So I find Joe Fowler and I bring him in. We interview him. We do the screen test. We do all that crap with him. We fall in love with him. He can sell like nobody's. Oh God, he was a great salesman. But the workload of trying to do the event centers, which is you sit in the studio and man, you are cranking them out for every single market, every single week. And you're throwing to all kinds. It's hard work and it's a lot of hours. And that wasn't for Joe. And he was making, we, we paid him. We basically bought out his contract. We paid him a lot of money in comparison to what other people that we would have hired from within the wrestling business would have made. And after about, I don't know, five, six months, Vince decided this is not working. And he was complaining about everything and just had become a nuisance overall um, because of the workload. It wasn't what he was used to. He was used to going in for three or four weeks doing a show and that being it. Let's, uh, let's talk about the SMW layout you guys did in a WWF magazine. Uh, this is the first time Tammy Fitch is in the WWF magazine and Tracy Smothers is there rock and roll express the dirty white boy. Um, I know that you guys are working with Jim Cornette. Does he request that you guys do a feature on Smoky mountain? Do you think if you had to guess, or is this probably just somebody at the magazine looking for content? Smoky Mountain, motherfucker. Corny, we we were using Corny as a talent, and we had brought Corny in with the Midnight Express. Not the Midnight Express, the Heavenly Bodies. Um, he was working with us, and Vince wanted him to manage Yokozuna, which was a fun conversation when that took place. But it was just a way to spotlight some of those guys because we were going to be using some of the Smoky Mountain talent and we wanted to have them as a feeder system for the WWF. So the magazine, just a feature. 
Well, let's talk about why we're here. And, and I'm sure we're going to cover this story a lot more when we do a Jerry Lawler episode one day. Uh, I do think he's probably one of the handful of profiles that I want to do more than others, just because nobody's got a story like Jerry Lawler. Meltzer would report Jerry Lawler, longtime co-owner of the United States Wrestling Association and one of the most enduring regional headliners in the history of pro wrestling was indicted on November 12th of one count of second degree rape and three counts of second degree sodomy and one count of harassing a witness. Lawler, who was scheduled to be arraigned in Louisville on November 22nd, was charged by Jefferson County, Kentucky grand jury of the five counts in reference to an alleged encounter with a 13 year old Louisville girl. He was also being investigated for criminal allegations in Southern Indiana on what are allegedly similar circumstances. I guess we should mention Jerry is 43 at this time. He's going to turn 44 on November 29th. Uh, the world wrestling federation faced with its own image problem over many printed allegations of sexually deviant behavior among two of its former employees, a steroid scandal and a nearly two year long justice department investigation, which went public in the New York mainstream media with front page newsday story less than two weeks prior, immediately suspended Lawler without pay upon receiving word Friday of the indictment, even though he was the company's hottest heel. His match on November 24th, the Survivor Series pay-per-view where he was the team with three unknown mass nights against Brett, Owen, Keith, and Bruce Hart was considered by most to be the top drawing match on the show, even though it was positioned by the company as second from the top. Company officials announced the next evening on its radio WWF show that Lawler had been indicted on five charges in Louisville and put on immediate hiatus from the WWF pending clearing up his legal situation. The company on the same show announced that Shawn Michaels would be replacing Lawler in the survivor series. And Michaels is expected to be Lawler's replacement in many of the already advertised house show matches with Bret Hart in the upcoming weeks. In some markets, Jeff Jarrett will be replacing Lawler in matches against Bret and other markets, including the early December California shows Lawler's role as a co-host on WWF superstars. As of this coming weekend will likely be taken by Bruce Pritchard who will use the television name Rio Rogers doing a heel character designed to be a parody of WCW Booker Dusty Rhodes. Lots to talk about here. Um, but let's talk about where you were and what you heard about Lawler's legal troubles. Look, you know, all I heard was exactly what you read and here's where, where you always have to be careful because when you're, you're involved in things like that, you don't want to know, right? You don't want you. I like the last thing that anyone wanted to do was speak to Jerry Lawler and say, Jerry, what happened? I don't want to know. I don't want to hear it because I don't want to be called as a witness. I, I want, let the court, let the, uh, investigators and the lawyers and everything do their part, do your investigation and whatever they come up with fine. But it, it protects, you know, Vince is funny. When you say, why didn't you know? Well, Vince didn't tell me. Why didn't Vince tell you if you're right next to him to protect me? And that was how he looked at it. And that's how we always operated. If I didn't need to know, I didn't want to know. I didn't want to know what was going on in Jerry Lawler's life because I didn't want somebody to come to me and say, hey, Bruce said this or Bruce said that. So I only knew what was being printed. We didn't discuss it amongst ourselves other than how does it affect business? What do we do? 
We suspended Jerry until the court case and whatever happens, happens. And then we'll reevaluate after that. So that was the extent of how we looked at Vince. Didn't I, I remember Vince sitting in there going, Jerry, I don't want to know. I don't want to know, but I can't have you on TV. I can't use you. Go home, get this straightened out, do what it is you need to do to fix this. And if you get it fixed, everything's fine. Come back. Your job will be here. But if I can help you in any way with an attorney, but I can't help you with advice here or anything else. And I don't, I don't need to know what did or didn't happen. Don't want to know. A lot of, uh, a lot of people in wrestling have had the insinuation that the Memphis territory had a reputation for underage girls, right or wrong. A lot of people have made that, uh, inference. Would you echo that? I mean, that you heard the same thing, not saying that it's true, but that the whispers in the locker room amongst the boys behind the curtain was that Memphis had a bit of a reputation in that regard. Absolutely. Yeah, it did. And I did hear that. Uh, you know, I never worked the Memphis territory for, for Lawler and Jarrett. So again, it's. It's all hearsay, rumor, and innuendo, and that's one of those things that okay, everybody hears, everybody talks about, and and whispers about it, but it may just be a rumor and innuendo, and it is what it is. That didn't help his case, right? That's exactly right. So people are talking and whispering because there was already smoke there. When this comes up, up, oh, you know, you're you're guilty till proven innocent. Well, let's um. Let's talk about the decision to use Jeff Jarrett as a replacement. Why is Jeff the right guy to step in and take Lawler's spot? It was for house shows and it was just something to, to get out there. I think we had already started the Jeff Jarrett vignettes on TV by this time. So people knew of him and it was somebody new that Brett could have a good match with. And that was it. He filled, you know, he filled, he filled out that space on the card. Talk to me about why Shawn Michaels is the right guy to headline the pay-per-view. Of course, this is before, I mean, they had a match at the prior survivor series, Brett and Sean, but this is before Brett and Sean is really a thing. Um, why was, why was he the right guy and, and what would he have done on this show? Had he not filled in for Lawler? Well, I answered the last question first. He wouldn't have done anything on the show because we had been doing a suspension gimmick with him over the Intercontinental Championship and all that. The reason that we chose Sean is whenever you have a substitution, and especially a substitution in one of your top marquee matches, you always try to make the substitution better than the original if that is at all possible because you want to deliver, you want to over deliver to mm -hmm. your audience. If it's possible, that's what you do. So we, you know, bit the bullet and said, okay, well, we'll end this Sean stuff. And, you know, here's Sean. He's there. He can work. We can use him. He's the best choice of a name that we had available to us to put into that role. So that's why we did it. All right. Our most requested thing. Rio fucking Rogers. 
Jeez, that it cannot be our most requested thing. No, dude, I get hit with this three times a day. Um, we, a lot of people want to hear the story of how this came to be. Meltzer even wrote in the newsletter doing a heel character designed as a parody of WCW Booker Dusty Rhodes. Tell me how, whose idea it was. Obviously, you had been doing the the Dusty impression around the office and around the guys for a long time. You're really tight with Vince at this point. How do you become the on-air character? Why are you the choice? And when Vince talks to you about doing that, or do you pitch yourself to do it? How does it sort of morph into this real Rogers persona? Well, kind of like here, sometimes I would just go into the American dream, baby. Then just say, well, listen, if we're going to do this, how about we get a little funky like a monkey. And I would, I would drop into, I, I do it. Thanksgiving around strangers. I'll just go into Dusty because I'll think, what would Dusty say right here, baby? How would he react? Ooh, look at that pumpkin pie, baby. <laughs> I just, you know, I fall into Dusty. He's easy to fall into. Uh, give me a little bit of that whipped cream. Make it extra whippy for me, baby. Mm-hmm. I love you, darling. I did that a lot. Jerry Jarrett, who would sit in with us from time to time on creative would, he just would get tickled at that. He thought that was the funniest thing he had ever heard. And, and why don't you do a character and do that voice? And my thing was like, I'm doing dusty. It's not a voice. It's motherfucking dusty Rhodes. You know, I mean, it's not like I'm just, I created a voice. I, you know, kind of, well, kind of like, uh, clear for mercy. Oh. Yes, and uh, I read all of my observers this week. It's not a voice I created. It was it was a it was do a dusty. So he stayed on and stayed on. And when this happened, we had no one else to just slide in to do this. And Jerry Jarrett pitched to Vince that I should do this real Rogers character. I hated it. Hate hate. Hate, hate, hated it. And there are very few things that I ever, I, well, actually, I never refused to do anything, including Rio Rogers. But Rio Rogers was probably the one thing that I balked at. And I said, Vince, I don't want to do this. And it was a way to, like, hey, Jerry, we took your idea. Okay on Vince's part to me, it was, it's a shitty idea. It's not an original character. I'm doing a rip off of dusty. And then to go further, if you want me to, to go further with it, I'll do a caricature of, of the rip off of dusty and go way the fuck over the top with it. But no matter what I do, it's going to be, they're doing dusty. You, you can't, you can't, when you're talking like that, baby, getting funky like a monkey, and Rio Rogers is here looking for my, looking for my horse trigger, Gail. Gail, put my horse on up here. Yeehaw, baby. You're doing that, everybody's talking. That's American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. And he says, I get it, but we'll do it. It'll work. And with me, we can play off of each other like we do normally. Okay. But how do I, you know, on cameras, what do I do? And that's when we came up with the the Fu Manchu. I didn't shave. 
and I, I put on a fake mustache because I couldn't grow a mustache. Couldn't I sure as hell couldn't grow a mustache in in whatever a week's time. So I had a fake Fu Manchu mustache. Instead of cowboy hat, I wore a baseball cap backwards. I wore Terry Funk's chaps. Those are my chaps. Pritchard Dusty stole those from me. And then he gave them to you. And you gave them to Tom, but they're mine. And I don't know where the fuck. Actually, Vince was the last person that wore them. And it was just silly. It was fucking stupid. It, it, it was terrible. And I called Dusty and I said, hey, Dream, just wanted to let you know. Uh, going to be doing a character character's name is Rio Rogers. I am going to portray this character, Rio Rogers, and he's going to sound an awful lot like you. In the point head, you do what it is you think you need to do. I said, well, this is not my idea, but out of respect to you, I, if you said Bruce, don't do it, that would probably carry a lot of weight with Vince and he wouldn't do it. He goes, you do what it is you need to do. Make your family some money. If you're making your family some money, you're making fun of me, then go for it. I said, I'm not making fun of you. Um, it's a parody. And he just kept telling me, you know, do it. Just do it. Do what you're going to do. And I told Vince, I said, this was Dusty's reaction. Great. He loves it. My <laughs> God, he's going to love this, bros. And we did it, and it positively fucking sucked. There was no rhyme or reason to it. It was difficult to do color with that character and that voice. Um, and, and after you've seen it once, the jig is up. Right. It's, it's not entertaining the second time. It's not funny. It's not cute. It's just monotonous. So uh, that's it, – it, it's uh, – to say it sucked – would be an understatement and I, I hate critiquing myself, but that sucked bad. I read the other day that, uh, Cody Rhodes absolutely hates when anybody does a dusty impression. And whenever someone's telling him a dusty story, if they start using a dusty voice, he just walks away. And he says the only two people who he thinks have a good dusty impression are you and Paul Heyman. Now, here's what I want to know. Can we have you do a dusty impression as Paul Heyman? I know I just went. <laughs> I, I, I know. What the fuck? Come on. Well, sir, if I may have another vibe. No, see, because then I go into my dusty <laughs> thing there. If you will, sir. That is not how he says it. He says, get funky like a monkey, sir. I may have, no, I, oh my God. It's like inception of impressions. Is it not? Yeah. That's, that's God. Boy, I need Bruce be... doing Paul doing dusty. Yeah, that would be, I don't know. I could do that. And I don't also don't know if I've ever heard Paul do dusty. And I always, you know, whenever I would greet, when Cody came in, I would always greet Cody as good afternoon. Cody Riley Reynolds, junior, the third on the fourth day, if you will, baby. And that's, he was always Cody Riley Reynolds Jr. The third or the second, whatever number you want be, baby. You just go on with it. Well, whatever number you're looking for, Lightstream can help make it happen for you. The holidays are approaching and you may be thinking about how you're going to save some extra money. Well, here's an idea. 
Why don't you consolidate some of those high interest credit card balances to a lower rate and save with Lightstream? Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 6.14% APR with auto pay. Compare that to the national average credit card interest rate of over 19%. Man, they can get you a loan from 5,000 all the way up to $100,000. And you can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. The application is 100% online and there are no fees. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate. And I've used Lightstream to purchase a car before. It was never easier. I just went online, banged out a couple of quick clicks and ta-da, they overnighted me a check. I was able to shop like a cash buyer, got a great deal, got the car I wanted and got the rate I wanted. And now our listeners can save even more with an additional interest rate discount. Check this out. The only way to get this discount and save you even more money is to go to lightstream.com slash wrestle. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com. Lightstream.com slash wrestle. Now, of course, this is subject to credit approval, but your rate is going to include a half a percent auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. But visit lightstream.com slash wrestle right now for more information. You're going to be glad you did. Now, let's talk a, a little bit about what Lawler is doing next here. Uh, he is going to continue to wrestle for the USWA in Memphis and the rest of the territory, with the exception of Louisville, of course, where the alleged incident took place. This is directly from the observer. Both Lawler and the girl, a front row regular at the matches, described by both Lawler and others as a groupie that the indictments are related to have been banned by the management of the Louisville gardens from the building for at least the past several weeks when police informed management of the investigation and potential charges, the second degree rape charge, which is statutory other than a forced rape charge, along with three second degree sodomy charges are felonies and carry possible prison sentences of five to 10 years apiece. The harassment of a witness charge is a misdemeanor with a maximum sentence of one year in prison and a $500 fine. This is something I never thought I would talk about on a wrestling podcast, but when they're saying second degree sodomy, they're referring to oral sex. Uh, the grand jury indictment on the four felony charges are related to alleged encounters in Louisville hotel rooms on June 6th and July 7th of this year. The harassment charge alleged that on October 4th, Lawler quote, engaged in misleading or unlawful conduct intended to dissuade a person who he believes may be called as a witness from causing a criminal prosecution to be sought or instituted end quote, according to a story in Saturday's Louisville courier journal, the charge is not related to the alleged victim of the sex crimes Lawler has been indicted for, but related to a 14 year old girl who may have been the first person to go to the authorities related to these charges. So this thing is, uh, this is real deal trouble here for Jerry Lawler. Are you guys, how are you keeping up with any information or any sort of updates? Are you just getting it from the newsletters or is somebody in the office getting reports from the police department? Are you following the local paper attorney to attorney? Okay. Attorney to attorney. And, and we had, you know, the attorneys would inform us, would inform us if there was something to be informed about, you know, we, we heard all this stuff, but we didn't dive deep into it. And the attorneys kept in touch with attorneys and kept everybody abreast. Detective Mike Redmond of the city County 
crimes against children unit said no force was used, but the charges were brought because of the girl's age. The age of consent in Kentucky is only 16, whereas it's 18 in most of the rest of the country. So they run a uh, television news report on a CBS affiliate in Louisville on Friday night, and it was centered around testimony to the grand jury. And they were talking about the two alleged incidents in Louisville on June 6th and July 7th. There was a third incident in Indiana on May 26th. And the television report focused on the testimony of one of the two girls who reportedly told the grand jury, quote, as soon as we walked into Lawler's room, he said, let's get naked. We took off all of our clothes and got into bed and we had sex while we were watching cartoons. According to the testimony, after the alleged encounter, Lawler took the two girls to value city and Taco Bell, a total of 17 people, including Jerry Lawler were called to testify on Friday. And that led to the five indictments, which took the grand jury just 10 minutes to vote on. Not good news here. Uh, according to Grimm's report, a second wrestler, Bill Martin, who formerly worked for the USWA as young stallion, Bill Marino was also linked to the case and testimony, but he wasn't indicted. And outside of the courtroom, Lawler was interviewed by the station saying the King is fighting back. The King is not going to take this lying down. The girls are lying. And Lawler has told reporters that he had a taped television uh, or telephone conversation, which he says would exonerate him. I'm sure we're going to cover this in, um, in more detail on the Lawler episode, but this initial testimony and hearing that there is going to be this indictment, I mean, immediately, I mean, they only deliberate deliberated 10 minutes before they say, oh yeah, we need to press forward on this. This has to be something that has everyone in wrestling on notice, not just Lawler, but I mean, this is going to have ripple effects throughout the entire industry. Would it not? I, I would think so. I think that people, you know, are looking at it and going, what, first of all, what the hell, but second of all, if there were those rumors and innuendos and different things that were going on in different parts of the country that yeah, maybe you need to clean up your act a little bit. And I think that that was a, a wake up call for a lot of people. So there's a, a phone call between Jerry Lawler and Wade Keller that gets picked up in the news where Lawler said something like this was a situation where a couple of young wrestling groupies were bragging about some supposed sexual conquest to some friends of theirs. And it snowballed from there. And it, as it was relayed from one person to another. And my name was dropped in among other names as having been with these girls and Lawler told Wade, each and every one of these allegations are false. They'll be proven false in a court of law. This is a case of a couple of girls who are wrestling groupies who told another party about a supposed sexual conquest. This party went to authorities. The authorities then came to me. I volunteered to tell my side of the story to a grand jury, but when I was in front of the grand jury, I didn't get to tell my side of the story and what I know about the situation. If it were you, would you have continued to put yourself on television? Not in a, in a, in a news story type of way, but I mean, he's still on USWA TV. He's still working the shows in your opinion, good move, bad move. In my opinion, I wouldn't have put, no, I wouldn't have continued to be on television and I would want to get it behind me as quickly as possible but I wouldn't put myself out there to be in a fictitious storyline that is perceived as real. Um, no, I wouldn't have done that. 
nor would I have spoken to newspapers or dirt sheets. I just let my lawyer do it all. And because unfortunately there, there's not a lot, no matter what you say or do at some point it, it comes back to bite you. And that's why what people don't understand sometimes, man, let it go. If uh, it gets to the legal point where you're dealing with lawyers and all this other shit, let them do the talking, go on your money. Chat me up about the way this changed perceptions of Lawler within the company. I know you said Vince was just sort of throwing his hands up saying, I don't want to know, go fix it. And if you get it settled, no problem. Come back. He's still relatively new in the company, but we've heard a lot of guys, you know, didn't have the best experience working that Memphis territory. And allegedly when he comes in, some guys are wanting to stomp his crown. Other guys are wanting to take a shit in the hat. Uh, when this comes out, this feels like something where maybe the office is sort of tight lipped, but the boys are going to have a field day with this story. Are they not? Probably so, you know, but Vince is the type of person that he is going to judge you on how you treat him and how you work with him one-on-one. He, he doesn't take a lot of things, you know, especially rumor and innuendo. He doesn't take a lot of that into account. He judges someone on a one-on-one basis and, and how they deal in this environment, not how they deal outside in a different environment. So people get the benefit of the doubt with Vince, and that's what he was doing with Lawler. Lawler's attorney, of course, is is pushing that, you know, this is all trumped up make-believe from the 13-year-old Louisville girl and her mother, uh, who was the third party that Lawler was referring to. Um, after the arraignment, Lawler, of course, pled not guilty there to all five charges. Uh, none of the charges were dropped. So he post bond only a thousand bucks. And then he returns to Memphis for largely positive press, which I think in hindsight, is kind of shocking, but that's what happened. And later in an interview with the pro wrestling torch, he said that, you know, he expected the charges to be dropped very quickly as soon as the next day. So it's written in the observer that the WWF officials have decided that Lawler would return to both his wrestling and announcing duties with the group. If, or when he's absolved of all charges, just as you said, but with word throughout wrestling on Sunday, sort of circulating that Lawler had already been cleared. The talk was that he might be back for survivor series after all. And a lot of this comes out because quote, the young lady says this never happened just got blown out of proportion. And when she tried to stop the prosecution, the authorities did not want to, they didn't want to hear the truth. And Meltzer would say at press time, a Louisville station had already taped an interview with the older brother of the alleged victim, which the station was taking to lawyers to decide whether or not it could air since the older brother was still under 18. And Massey says that Lawler had given the girl and her mother nothing in exchange for the statement and that no civil suits had been filed in either direction. And there was absolutely no monetary uh, settlement. So this, a feel, this feels like a uh, sort of false alarm here. When you guys hear, you know, uh, prematurely Lawler's been cleared and it does look like these charges are going to go away. Is there a consideration of reintroducing him back into survivor series? Or at that point, since you'd pivoted to Sean, you were going to see that through no matter what. We'd already made the pivot. We're just going to see it through and then bring Jerry back to bring him back right immediately after 
we, first of all, we need to make sure that everything was dropped and there were no pending charges or they weren't going to come back with some other uh, charge later on. So we had already made the change to Sean. We didn't want to flop back and forth and back and forth. There was consideration of, of making Lawler one of the knights, you know, put him in the hood and have it that way. But Vince decided against it and didn't want to use him just yet. As if this wasn't enough. McMahon and Titan sports were arraigned on Tuesday morning, November 23rd in Brooklyn. McMahon would plead not guilty on all charges and is released on a $250,000 bond. And a trial date was set for May 2nd, 1994. And this comes out. Of course, what we're talking about is the steroid trial. Uh, the charges against Vince McMahon were conspiracy to distribute anabolic steroids and to defraud the United States food and drug administration. From the period of 1985 through February of 91, that was a maximum penalty of five years in prison, illegal possession of anabolic steroids with the intent to distribute. That was on October 24th, 1989. And that had a maximum penalty of three years in prison. And then there were personal fines against Vince McMahon for both charges for $500,000. And here are the charges against Titan sports conspiracy to distribute anabolic steroids and to defraud the United States food and drug administration. $500,000 fine illegal possession of anabolic steroids with the intent to distribute again, October 24, 39, a half a million dollar fine and an additional maximum penalty against Titan sports for one or both counts forfeiture of the land office building and everything in it located at 1241 East main street in Stanford, AKA Titan towers and the estimated value of the office building even back then was nine and a half million dollars. So as if all of this is not enough, business is down. Your top guy is, is in trouble for allegedly raping a 13 year old. And now you yourself have been indicted as well as your company. And they want a boatload of money and to send you to prison and to seize your office. Is this the worst month in the history of WWF? <laughs> Wasn't a good one, man. That's for damn sure. You know, Vince, we, we knew the indictment was coming. We just didn't know when. And Vince had actually gone down to the federal prosecutor's office and, and tried to talk to her and say, hey, here I am. You want to interview me? You want to ask me questions? You want to talk to me? Let's do it. Uh, I, I'm standing here right now. Would you please? Can we set up an appointment? Can we talk now? And the prosecutor refused to meet with Vince, refused to set up a time and or an appointment to talk to Vince about these alleged charges that they were working up, up against him. Now, they sure as fuck would go talk to everybody else, but they didn't want to talk to the guy that they were accusing of all this shit. So it was it was a very trying time, and uh, and it was a sad time for us with all this this stuff coming down. But you just put your head down and move forward. That's all you can do. You, you can sit there and cry about it and say, woe is me. And this is terrible. This is the shits or let's take a look at the Royal rumble. Move on. Uh, it's an interesting thing, man. McMahon is going to, uh, issue a statement through his lawler through his lawyers, not lawlers, uh, where he says, uh, the government's prosecutors are quote, now trying to make me responsible for what the doctor did. I did no such thing. Of course, he's talking about Zahorian there. 
Uh, he also says, quote, to turn my personal use into a crime, they claim I shared some of those steroids with a friend and that somehow made me a dealer End quote. What's uh, I know you're inside the bubble, but when you see, Hey, business is down a little bit, Hulk Hogan's gone, you know, their top act is, is indicted on rape stuff. And now the steroid thing are people thinking, Hey, this is the end of WWF. I think that there were quite a few people definitely outside of Titan sports and outside of the WWF that felt this, this is the, the death blow we're done. You know, they're, we're going out of business. Hogan's not there. They're, they're going downhill. Their house shows aren't drawing. Uh, they've got one guy that's raping little kids and another guy distributing steroids. Um, yeah, they're done. I think that was a scuttlebutt outside of everything for those that were inside next to it. And, you know, especially on the indictment and all of the stuff with the steroids and what the government was doing and who had actually spoken to the government, you're thinking, this is a fucking witch hunt. They have nothing this, this is crazy. So there was, there was a lot of fight in us. It's, uh, it's interesting because this is really the first time that I think a lot of us had Jerry McDivitt on the radar as McMahon's attorney. And he was quoted in the New York daily news as saying these charges are quote cockamamie. We're going back into ancient and revisionist history to fashion an indictment against Vince McMahon. And this story goes everywhere, man. NBC, ABC, ESPN, CNN, primetime live. Obviously it's all over New York. It's on stuff like the New York post. It's even on the rags, like inside edition and people are being quoted and everybody's got an opinion on this, of course, um, including Ken Patera, where he says, everybody used steroids. And if you didn't use them, you couldn't work for Vince McMahon. Uh, Craig Peters of pro wrestling illustrated says, I don't know if McMahon gave wrestler steroids, but there was an implicit message about the bigger the bodies, the more impressive the physique, the better chance you have for getting a job with the WWF and ultimate warriors even quoted as saying McMahon never told him to use steroids, but the road schedule and pressure to maintain the ultimate warrior character encouraged him to take advantage of every edge, including steroids. And of course, Vince is saying essentially, Hey, with everybody who's worked for me and it didn't go well, you know, they no longer work for me. There'd be a line of guys saying, yeah, he did it to me too. And that hasn't happened. This is, uh, the most challenging thing that's ever hit the company. And, and obviously we've covered it in our archives. It's something to wrestle.com, but we're, we're back to sort of where we started at the beginning of this show. A lot of this centers around Hulk Hogan, the New York daily news names him as the unidentified WWF performer known to the grand jury who allegedly was supplied anabolic steroids from Titan sports and Vince McMahon, uh, between on or around March and 88, March of 88 and October of 89. And we've covered that in our archives. If you want to go check it out, but I mean, at this point, are you thinking I might need to update my resume? No, because we felt that, you know, we were making all the inroads to continue on and Vince wasn't closing the company and shutting down was never an option. The 
to plan for events were to go into the pen for a few years. Yeah, we discussed that. We discussed how everybody would continue to do their jobs and Linda would assume the, the role as the head of the company, but that everyone else was just expected to do their jobs in the roles that they were hired to do. So that was, that was easy. That's what we were doing. And, and we just kept our head down and the, the vision and the goal was to keep the company opening and continue to do business. Uh, let's talk about Stan Lane of the Midnight Express and Fabulous One's tag team fame. Uh, he was brought in as an announcer during this time. Uh, how does that come to be, and, and how do you think he did? Stan uh, came up, and Stan had been part of the Heavenly Bodies. Was he the Heavenly Body or the new Midnight Express? I don't even remember which. But Stan had retired from active wrestling, and he had a good look, had a good gift to gab. We brought Stan up to be a possibly a play-by-play guy, but also a interviewer. Uh, he did okay, but just wasn't. Here was this was my favorite my favorite Stan Lane story and kind of analogy. We would use Stan to be the interviewer when we would bring people in for auditions. So, for example, you're doing an audition and you do it with Stan. And then he would interview you after the interview was done. Stan would come up like to me or Vince or whoever was doing the audition. How did I do? So Stan, you've already got a fucking job. dude. You're here, you know, helping audition these people. You're fine. But it was always, it was a constant. How did I do? How was I? Did I look good? Um, Stan was, you know, I, I just don't know that Vince was ever really fond of, of his work, uh, the FM DJ stuff. I thought Stan had a great look and he was different. He was young. He was different, but I think that Vince felt he was an FM DJ guy that he didn't care for his work. November 21st, you guys did a uh, Survivor Series showdown, and it went down on the USA Network, of course. It was taped about 11 days prior on November 10th at the Farrell Hall in Delhi, New York. You guys did these a few times for uh, SummerSlam, I believe, a few months prior as well. Chat me up. Why did you stop doing SummerSlam showdowns and Survivor Series showdowns? It's obviously a last-minute push to sell pay-per-views. Was the result not what you hoped for? Did it not sell enough shows? It was basically a situation with the network. And if the network had the time and the network was willing to work with us on that time, then we did the shows. And if they weren't, sometimes they already had things scheduled that they couldn't move around and we couldn't do them. But if there was an opportunity to do it, we would seize it. So chat me up about Rio's roundup uh, on this, uh, this showdown spot here is where you interview Shawn Michaels. You know where we're going here? Is this at the house? Yeah. You make a special visit to the Hart house in Calgary and Sean is discussing his nights and how he's going to get revenge on Bret Hart for his loss last year and take out the whole family along the way. And then you guys walk up to the side of the house and he enters the house and they encounter someone in a female Halloween mask pretending to be Helen Hart. And you guys walk around sort of taking digs at all the Hart's memorabilia thrown around the house and then they come upon 
someone sitting in a wheelchair wearing an old man mask and hitman sunglasses pretending to be Stu Hart. Uh, Vince McMahon would interject and end the segment. He calls it shameful. So that means he loved it. <laughs> Chat me up. What did you think of this Rio's Roundup skit uh, in front of the Hart House? Ah, oh, we've had enough of this. That's shameful. Ah, Rio Rogers. Well, we need we needed, <laughs> we needed a last minute go home segment to promote this match. And since it was all last minute stuff and Sean's interviews, they were all after the fact, after we had already recorded all of our television and everything for this. So we flew Sean up to Connecticut, went to Howard Finkel's house because we felt Howard's house was the closest to the Hart family house in Calgary. And Sean and I on our own, um, that's what we came up with. We, we had to get it done very quickly, get it back to be edited and get it into the show. And what you see is what you get. We, we busted on the hearts and we busted on the entire family and got in and got out and got something that could actually make air before the pay-per-view. So we were happy. Uh, let's talk about, um, survivor series here. I guess we should mention the main event of that showdown is a world title match. Yokozuna defending against Bret Hart. A uh, pretty good match. They go more than 15 minutes. Of course, it's going to be a DQ. Um, imagine that. Uh, on the actual Survivor Series show, which is why we're here, and we're over an hour and a half into the show before we get there, um, there's a dark match. Billy Gunn pins the Brooklyn Brawler with a sunset flip off the top rope. And uh, I guess this means Billy came in before Bart, right? No, they came in together. We just put a single match out there and didn't want to do a tag because there were going to be tag team matches already with the, all the tag matches throughout the night. We just wanted to do a single match. Your first match is an elimination match, and uh, they're going to go 26 minutes and 58 seconds. We've got Marty Jannetty teaming with the one, two, three kid, Razor Ramon and Randy Savage. This is your first match on the pay-per-view. And they're taking on Diesel, Rick Martell, and Adam Baum, along with IRS. Uh, chat me up here. This is uh, pretty loaded with talent. Razor Ramon and Randy Savage have been main eventers. Diesel's obviously going to be your world champion and a big star. And they're out here in the first match, which is interesting. It doesn't get a, uh, a bad rating. It gets two and three quarters in the observer. And he would sort of recap the match by saying, basically a good match to start the card off on a positive note. Uh, what'd you think? I thought it was good. You know, we, we had to, uh, this was during time that Mr. Perfect was out again and we had to replace perfect with Randy Savage with, with macho man in this match. It was a good match. It, the guys all gelled really well and they made the most out of what they had protected diesel. Didn't have to do a whole lot in there and it, it was good, but it was a hell of a way to get the night started off. And as I said, you know, if you're going to do a substitution, you always try and do a substitution with something bigger or better. And Randy Savage replacing Mr. Perfect uh, was definitely a bigger and better replacement. This feels like um, the plans aren't really set yet for Diesel because I, and I know he's going to be world champion, but he's the first guy eliminated here. What's the feeling on him at this point? 
he was a bodyguard. You know, he was he was Sean's bodyguard. And we really didn't know what to do with him yet. It wouldn't be until the next Royal Rumble that we featured him and got that feeling of that rumbling, you know, with him dominating everybody that we said, holy shit, you know, there's something there. Kevin was still pretty damn green at this point. So we didn't want to keep him in there too long and expose him. You protect him, get him out of the match fairly quickly. Next up, we've got the hearts, Bruce, Keith, Brett, and Owen taking on Shawn Michaels and the blue Knight, the red Knight, and the black Knight. Now, of course they want all the star power here. So the blue Knight is Greg Valentine. The red Knight is Barry Horowitz and the black Knight is Jeff Gaylord. They go 30 minutes and 57 seconds. And when I said, Jeff Gaylord, you put your hand over your face. Uh, way too long. It just didn't work. This is according to the observer. They tried to plug Michaels into the Lawler spot and claimed Michaels had been insulting the family all this time, but anyone who watched TV knew better. Michaels couldn't carry for interest. The Knights came off as jobbers and Ray Combs as the announcer totally buried Bruce and Keith to the TV audience, acting like they weren't even wrestlers trying to make it out. Like it was your history teacher over there, trying to be a wrestler. Combs was telling jokes on the PA before the show that didn't get over. The red Knight was originally supposed to be Terry funk, but funk at the last minute decided to go home. Owen would pin the black Knight in 10 minutes and 49 seconds with a drop kick off the top rope. Brett would put the red Knight in the sharpshooter in seven minutes and 17 seconds. Um, eventually, you know, what's coming. It's all three hearts uh, or the remaining three hearts versus Michaels. Michaels is going to take all kinds of, of great bumps. And, um, ultimately this is going to lead to Owen and Brett arguing and Owen's going to turn heel and his mother's going to start to weep. And we've covered this in our Owen Hart episode, but this match, while it is, uh, supposed to be, you know, the second most important match or maybe the most important match on the pay-per-view obviously took a hard left turn here when Lawler's out. But the most interesting tidbit of this whole thing to me is that Terry Funk was supposed to be a knight. And of all the things, a Jerry Lawler tag team with Terry Funk was Funk in the mix to be a knight before yeah. Lawler was, was kicked out of the show. Absolutely. That's tremendous. Talk me through how the, the conversation went to bring Funk in and then ultimately why left. We were looking for names. We were looking for some names that would be surprises and that would be fun, you know, a, a fun deal to be a part of the Survivor Series. And originally, originally, they would be a mystery. Those that got it, you know, would say, look, oh, my God, that that night is walking around like Terry Funk. I think that's Terry Funk. I think that's Greg Valentine. I think that's so-and-so. Um, I think Snooka was even one of the names that was bantered back and forth. So it was looking for legendary names. Yeah. To put under the mask and, and for Lawler and, and, and with some kind of history with Lawler too and or Brett. But then, uh, when everything happened with, with Lawler, Lawler went away. We needed someone to fill his shoes. And that, that was Sean just out of, we, we really had no one else. We wanted it to be a big, big time replacement. Terry Funk was still going to be one of the nights. And now as we're getting into it, 
and we're getting closer to the match. Pat Patterson has an idea about what if the Knights get unmasked throughout the match? Um, one time, you know, you reveal it's Greg Valentine, then you reveal it's Terry Funk, and you reveal it's Jimmy Snooker, whoever the hell hell else it was. Yeah, that'll be fun at a pace, and everybody go, oh, I knew that was him, and they get a pop. So we shared this with Brett, and we, we talked about it with Brett and said, hey, what do you think about this? Be thinking of some ideas. We haven't really talked to anybody. Don't know if we're going to do this, but be thinking of ideas of different ways that we can get to the, the finish here. In addition to that, now I'm going to remind me to go back to that, but in addition to that, so much of this, the genesis of the whole heart family being together was Bruce Hart had written a letter to Vince with an angle between him and Brett. And the angle was pretty good and, and it's, and it pretty much runs along the parallel of, of what we did with Owen, but it was Brett who came to us and, and said, you know, I agree with you. I like that angle, but I want to do it with Owen. I don't want to do it with Bruce. And we all agreed because one of Vince's dilemmas was, he goes, you know, I, he, he wasn't sure about bringing Bruce in, uh, but he knew what he had in Owen. And Brett was the one who brought Owen up. And we were like, yes. And so then we started building the, the whole Owen Hart, Brett angle. But going back to the uh, guys getting unmasked. So everybody came in, the show was in Boston. Everybody came in to, Stanford the night before the pay-per-view and Brett, I guess had gotten with Terry Funk and explained, you know, Hey, you know, we're going to do this. I'm going to put the sharpshooter on you and then I'm going to unmask you. And Terry's like, okay, he's listening. He's listening and so on and so forth. And apparently they stay up all night long, uh, having drinks and having a good time. I get a uh, message on my answering machine. Richard, it's the Funker. I've got to go home. My horse is sick. And that was it. And I'm calling the hotel, ringing his room. He's not there. Um, he left. He folded up his night outfit and left it outside Brett's door. So, yeah, the Funker's horse was sick, and he he went home. Allegedly, that was how he left the WWF every time. Uh, even back in the 80s, he would tell Vince that his horse was sick or maybe even leave a, uh, a handwritten note explaining that his horse was sick, and he was out of there. When you tell Vince, hey, Funk's out, uh, he said his horse was sick, what's the response? <laughs> All right, who are we replacing him with? That was it. And then, you know, we, we tried to figure out what happened. And when we went back and pieced it all together, I think it was Terry didn't, didn't want to be unmasked. I don't know. I really don't know. It's kind of you know, weird, it? isn't it? it? It really was weird because he was gung-ho and we had laid everything out for him. We did not uh, lay out the unmasking because we hadn't decided if we were going to do it or not. It was just an idea that Pat had, but I guess when it was pitched to him, 
that was the finish. So maybe maybe he just didn't want to tap out to the sharpshooter and get unmasked. I don't know why, but that's fascinating to me. So uh, how do you guys wind up with uh, Barry Horowitz as a knight? I mean, this feels like, I mean, y'all are just taking people's money. Why? He was a good knight. Um, no. You know, we had, we had a lot of guys there. We had, you know, we had Barry there. God, it could have been Bart Gunn. It could have been a lot of people. Uh, we had Glenn Jacobs there. So there were a lot of people there that we were last minute going, well, shit, maybe they could be a knight. Maybe he could be a knight. So it didn't matter at that point. It was just an enhancement to get the hearts over and to get to the story of Owen and Brett. And that's, that was the purpose of the match was to get to Owen and Brett. So it really didn't matter who the fuck the night was at this point. We didn't have our Lawler Brett angle that we were going to blow off here. We stuck Sean in there. We just needed to get through the match to get to the whole story. So it, it didn't matter. It, it really and truly who the Knights were at this point didn't matter. We didn't have our big reveals to have fun with. I think it does matter. You know, I mean, holy cow. Jeff Gaylord, Barry Horowitz. Okay, what, what are you going to do the day, the day of? Again, what are you going to do? You, you're going to shit out a wrestler and, and just have them uh, appear. I mean, so it we, snuck up on you. You didn't know that you'd been advertising this match for months. We didn't know Terry Funk was going to not show up the day before or day of. All right. Well, there's one. But you still, well, had we had Terry, we had Terry and Greg Valentine, and then we were planning on doing some others that all fell through. They all fell through all the way up until the last day of the show. Shameful. So you do, you do what you have. You work with what you have. And just, okay. I mean, Barry Horowitz is a, is a, is an enhancement guy. Barry Horowitz was light heavyweight champion by God. It's unbelievable to me that you can even remotely justify this. Let's talk about Ray Combs. Uh, I think if you don't remember the name, you probably remember him as the host of family feud made an appearance. I believe at WrestleMania eight. Uh, I think he was the ring announcer for the boss man match. What was the relationship like with the WWF and Ray? He seemed to be a big wrestling fan cause he was around all the time. And, uh, if you don't know, unfortunately we lost Ray in June of 96, he, uh, committed suicide. He was taken in for a psychiatric evaluation because he had a, a domestic disturbance with an estranged wife and he was in the hospital for a suicide attempt, but he actually wound up committing suicide in June of 96. So a sad end to his life. Any funny moments you could remember with Ray or how that relationship came to be with him and the company? Well, he was friends with Bobby Heenan and they're both from Indiana Bobby and Ray were really good friends. Ray was the host of Family Feud. Always a big wrestling fan and enjoyed doing anything with us. So it came up. He was available. And we thought Family Feud, because you had the Hart family, that he would be a good ring announcer. Just a nice little extra treat for the audience um, to have him come out and be the ring announcer for it. Family Feud host, host of Family Feud with the Hearts and the Knights. Silly. 
not silly. It's entertainment. God, it's entertainment. Let's talk about the story of the match, because this is where we really get, uh, the beginning of this Owen Hart, Bret Hart feud. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, uh, how you thought it was carried off. If any of the guys within the company had an issue with it, how it was received, you know, what it was like dealing with the heart who lost the spot. It's just, uh, this is one of the more iconic feuds of 1994 and we're going to get it kicked off here at the end of 93. Well, the idea, like I said, it was, it was something that Bruce Hart had come up with originally for himself and the genesis of it was that he would turn on his brother, Brett out of jealousy. Brett came to us and said, you know, if I'm going to do something with my brother, I'd rather do something with Owen. So we started thinking about things to do with Owen. And as we started talking to Owen and to Brett, and I remember having a, a few TVs where in getting, you know, this goes back to, which I've talked about before Vince, not really buying into the brothers feuding. God damn it. Brothers don't fight. And I'm thinking, what? I fought my brothers my entire life still to this day. But, um, you know, families fight. That's real. I think that's something that, that most families can identify with and relate to, you know, arguments and jealousy and, and just petty shit within the family. And Vince like, that's not real. I'm like, God damn, that's the most real thing we could do. So we spent a few TVs just really sitting down with Brett and Owen, thinking about different things that we could do and, and how we start it and start the seeds of the jealousy and Brett stealing the glory at Survivor Series and then getting to the tag team matches at Royal Rumble where Owen and Brett are going for the gold and then Owen feels Brett screws him out of it all the way to WrestleMania and then beyond when they finally have the single matches, uh, run, but it was, it was laid out pretty, pretty well. And it was something once we got over that hurdle and once Vince saw that people were really getting into the Owen Hart and Bret Hart rivalry, then he embraced it. But man, it was tough getting him there because he he came kicking and screaming, but it was it was really tough. I could relate to it because I had brothers. And when Brett and Owen and we all sat down and they were like, Fuck yeah, we fight. Everybody fights. We were all we were ready to go. Uh Brett wrote about this uh match in his book. He said that um on November twenty third, they all flew into LaGuardia. And Vince had invited his brothers to, uh, have a brawl at the survivor series against three masked wrestlers. So he's laying out, you know, when they get everybody together, here's how the match is going to go. And he says that Bruce had been, uh, going over with one of the greener wrestlers, which I would assume would be Jeff Gaylord quote, a script, the size of gone with the, with, with the wind with Bruce, presumably playing Rhett Butler. And he told Bruce that the spotlight needed to be on Owen because survivor series is the beginning of Owen's heel turn on him. After he explains he being Brett, what everybody's role would be. Bruce goes right back into designing the match around himself and Brett reprimands him in front of everyone. 
And eventually Sean says, quote, if my brother was world champion and the best in the business, I think I'd quit fucking arguing with him and start listening to him. So kind of fun that Sean Michaels is defending Brett here. I don't know why, but that, that stuck out to me. I remember the frustration and I remember at one point, and I don't know if it was Sean or Brett, you know, had to bring Pat Patterson in it as well, just to say, guys, this is what we're doing. This is the story we're t- doing. Don't do any more than this. Don't do that. You know, it was a whole list of no, you know, so it was, it was an interesting day to say the least, but I remember that. I, I definitely remember that and the frustration of putting that match together. Brett is very complimentary of Sean in his book about this match. He says, Sean did a superb job carrying the match, though in fairness, everyone worked hard. The biggest pop of the night came when Sean staggered past Stu on the floor and Stu drilled him with one of the big elbow smashes, which Sean later told me he was honored to take. And, uh, Owen was highlighted throughout the match. And of course, at the end, we know what's going to happen. Uh, they're going to get after it. And now there is an Owen and Brett feud and, um, Brett's pretty proud of this. He says the heart boys had more than risen to the occasion. And I was proud of my brothers. Stu had a twinkle in his eye. Uh, this is a, probably a pretty big deal for Stu to see all of his kids working together on a big show like this on a pay-per-view. Uh, any, uh, any memories of Stu that weekend? I think Stu and Helen were ecstatic because they had all their boys working it kind of took them back to the old Calgary wrestling where the family wrestled every single week in whatever arena they wrestled there and to have all of his boys wrestling on the card, but to team together. And it may have been, I don't know, it may have been the first time that those guys had all teamed together. So for the fam, I think for all the brothers and for Stu and Helen, it was really nice to see the family together and to have that spotlight on them at a big pay-per-view. So let's talk about the next match here. The four doinks who turned out to be men on a mission. Why are you? (laughs) Oh, Bruce has his head in his hands. The four doinks who turned out to be men on a mission and the bushwhackers beat Bam Bam Bigelow, the head shrinkers and Bastion Booger. How How about that shit? It goes, uh, that's what it was. It goes 10 minutes and 58 seconds. And about fucking uh, 10 minutes too long. They got a dud rating in the observer. Is that surprising to you? It was a fucking heaping pile of dog turds. It was fucking brutal. And to have to watch it again was painful. Just thinking, God. And, and again, again, this was another case of, man, we had had, Matt Bourne doink, and now we got Ray Apollo doink. We didn't have the same doink. We didn't have the same intensity of of anything. And and it it was just fucking brutal. I think that, I think that Matt had Matt been a part of this because of, of Bam Bam and Matt, they did have chemistry. I thought it just would have had a different vibe to it. This was Fucking horrible. Horrible. Worse than horrible. <laughs> Worse than horrible. At one point, I mean, Os- we have to improve to be horrible. 
at one point, Oscar throws, um, some food into the ring and eventually Fatu is going to have Mo pinned, but he gets up and slips on a banana peel. You guys really did this. It's outstanding. Let's go to the next match. Lex Luger. Yes, please, please. God, let's go to the next match. Lex Luger teamed with the Steiner brothers and the undertaker. That's a hell of a tag team uh, to take on and win against Ludwig Borga, Yokozuna, Jacques Rougeau, and crush. Uh, man, the one side of this team or, or this match has a lot of star power undertaker Luger, the Steiners, the other side, maybe not quite as much. Uh, it gets two and a half stars. Meltzer would say not bad, but hardly a memorable pay-per-view main event. What say you? It was what it was. And it took, you know, it took the top guys that we had to feature at that time, minus Brett and got them into that last match. Vince was still kind of set on Lex being the guy and, and he had already committed to this by this time, you know, we're thinking eh, probably not going to be, but we'd already committed by God. We're going with it. We're going with the USA Lex Luger. The part you left out, man, was the very opening of this show. When you go back and you see Lex Luger, sitting in front of a fireplace with his beautiful wife and his two lovely children. I had to shoot that thing the day before in Atlanta, Georgia. Kerwin Selfies and I flew down. We met a crew there. And when you look at it, you say, well, goddamn, Bruce, how hard was that? It's, hi, I'm Lex Luger. This is my wife, so-and-so. This is my son, so-and-so. This is my daughter. And from my family to you, we just want to wish all of you at home a very happy Thanksgiving from the Luger family to you. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Easy. I mean, how hard can that be? I got it. Four and a half hours later. Called Vince. I said, Vince, I don't know if this is going to work. I said, I have something, but it's fucking horrible. And I don't think that it is going to help Lex. It's terrible. What do you mean? God damn it. How hard can it be? <laughs> he introduces his family. He says, happy fucking Thanksgiving. Said, You're right. Pretty easy. And I've done it for him about 800 times. But there was a little incident with his son and his son and Lex, like, got upset with his son. His son then got upset and started to cry. And his son had big, huge, puffy, red eye, crying eyes. Um, His wife then got upset with Lex. And the daughter was absolutely sweet as could be. His, His wife was... Man, she was great. She she was so nice and just cordial. And it's the day before Thanksgiving, and she's inviting us into her home. And just she was great, and the kids were great. And Lex was just wound tighter than a fucking top. And I said, you know, let's do one more. And can we just 
I mean, forget about everything. Just wish everybody a merry, uh, a happy Thanksgiving. And finally, what you see, that was the very best take of what we had of over, of almost five hours at the house. And it's in Atlanta, okay? And it was really hot in Atlanta that day. So we wanted a fireplace going. We have a fireplace going. It's hot. We have to turn the air conditioner off because of the audio. So <laughs> we're in a hot house with the air conditioner going, and they're all in, in like holiday sweaters and shit. And we're just dripping in sweat and miserable. And Lex doesn't want to be there. And the kids don't want to be there. And it was pulling fucking teeth. I had flashbacks when I watched this yesterday and had bad dreams about it last night. Just having to go back and relive that moment in those five hours in the Lex Luger home. Well, what's great about this 27 minute and 59 second match well, here's a great line. Vince McMahon made the comment that Borga may be the wrestler for the nineties. Meltzer would say, God help us for the next seven years. Ludwig Borga. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. That's what you said. Last time we talked about Ludwig Borga, Ludwig Borga was Tony Helm, a, a Finnish wrestler from Finland. And he was a miserable prick, but he was one of those guys that still in the days of people saying, oh, I know it's a work. I know it's all entertainment. When he walked down the aisle, people were genuinely afraid of him. He had that aura about him and he was a, a stone cold heel. Problem was his work was limited and he was an asshole. So it was well, but you guys had high hopes for him. He debuts in January, did. A, 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 a big series of vignettes and he's, um, sort of taking Americans to task for their perceived deficiencies and issues like environmental laws and education, and even ends the Tatanka undefeated streak that had been going for like two years. He beat him with one finger and he goes on a long undefeated streak himself. You know, what did Vince see in him? Did he think he was going to be the next big star for real? We, we, he was going to be our Ivan Drago. He was going to be the big nasty foreign heel that was going to be the threat to Lex Luger. And by God, he was going to be the next, the bit next big nasty real heel. Uh, after Luger's feud with Yokozuna for the world title where they headlined SummerSlam 93, he starts a, a brief feud with. Ludwig, and it seems like this is going to be build towards a big pay-per-view confrontation with Luger and Ludwig. Why didn't it go further? Cause the bell rang that goddamn bell rang and that'll ruin a lot of shit. When we saw the, the lack of chemistry between Luger and Ludwig, it was, it was the blind leading the blind. And you didn't realize how limited each one of those guys really were on their own until you put them in the ring together and went, Oh fuck. Well, let me, that's not good. Let me tell you, there's no limit with Robin hood. You know, we've been talking about these guys for a little while now, but Robin hood is a phenomenal investing app. That's going to let you buy, sell whatever you're looking for with stocks, man, even options and cryptos. You can do all of this commission free when you use Robin hood. And even if you're like a newcomer to the stock market, 
You can invest for the first time with true confidence. Other brokerages are going to charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees at all, which means you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. And with a clear and easy to understand charts and market data, man, Robinhood lets you place trades on your smartphone in just four taps. It's super easy. Even if you're on the web, you can view stock collections like a uh, hundred most popular or entertainment or social media. Plus you can discover new stocks and track your favorite companies with a personalized news feed. And this has been so easy. Even you can do it, Bruce. And now all of our great listeners can get a hell of an offer here. Check this out. Robin hood's going to give you a free stock, man, like Apple or Ford or sprint. That's going to help you build your portfolio, a free stock. All you've got to do is go sign up right now at wrestle.robinhood.com. I want to mention that again. Robinhood's going to give you a free stock. You've just got to go claim it. Sign up right now at wrestle.robinhood.com. That's wrestle.robinhood.com. Uh, Bruce Ludwig Borga, you know, even though he's being championed here as being the, um, the wrestler for the nineties, he's gone just a couple of months later. He, uh, injures his ankle and then he's, he's done after that or not too terribly long after that. Why, you know, how did the end come for Ludwig? I don't mean that to sound bad. I need to back up on that. Tony committed suicide in January of 2010. He shot himself. So I don't, I wasn't making a joke when I said, how does it come to an end? I meant his run as Ludwig Borga. Is it the injury? And then he just didn't want to come back or he wanted more money. He wanted time off. He wasn't happy with creative or did you guys just realize we don't have anything else for him? Combination of all of the above. I think Ludwig also saw the writing on the wall from the injury. He had put on a lot of weight, wasn't training and wanted to, he wanted to go home was his excuse to us. And so we saw an opportunity. He wasn't getting over with the audience. This is an opportunity to make a clean break. Tony, you go on and do your thing and we'll do our thing. When you get back in shape and you're ready to make a commitment to come back and stay in the States and work, let us know. And we never heard from him again. I guess we, uh, we've talked about it before, but we can't get out of here without talking about the American flag inside of the undertaker's jacket when he joined the all Americans, um, Lex Luger and the Steiner brothers chat me up. Well, you notice, uh, he, he didn't have it here because his dog ate it. Oh, the Terry Funk's horse got sick and undertaker's dog. And the damn thing about that dog is the dog just ate the, uh, the red, white, and blue lining part of it, man, the rest of it. He left in, in intact. Man, that dog's got like that talent. Lining. Yeah. He didn't like that lining, man. <laughs> this match here, of course, in the main event really kicks off the undertaker Yokozuna feud. They're going to continue to wrestle in a few months later in uh, January at the Royal rumble. They're going to kill the undertaker and he's going to go to heaven. And we have covered that in the archives of something to wrestle.com. Uh, this event is also Bobby, the brain Heenan's last pay-per-view as a commentator or in the WWE, he's going to leave the company just a few months after the event. Apparently he gave us two week notice here at the show at survivor series. What are your memories of this? I was very sad and I knew about a week beforehand. I told him he needed to speak to Vince and, and give Vince one last opportunity, but he just felt that 
he had to go and he didn't want to give Vince, you know, that opportunity, but he said that he would not leave high and dry and he would give him two weeks notice. Um, Bobby, and I understand why Bobby left. Bobby left because he needed insurance and Bobby wanted insurance. And as a employee for TBS and for Turner and working for them, he would be afforded insurance because he wasn't taking bumps and he wouldn't be an independent contractor. He would have been an employee. So that was something that, that he wanted to do. And that was the reasons for him doing it at that time. Um, it crushed me because Bobby was my friend and I, and I, and I love Bobby. I didn't want him to go and I wish I, I wish I could have convinced him to stay, but there, there was no convincing him to do that. And I don't think that Vince, I think actually, I do think that Vince, if he had been given those options and Bobby said to Vince, Vince, I, I need insurance for my family. I'd like to be an employee and, and work full time just as a commentator and all this. I think Vince probably would have done it, but he never gave him that opportunity. And, and Bobby just felt Vince wouldn't do it. So he left and I was, I was, I was heartbroken. Well, let's, um, let's put a bow on this week's episode. This was not an announced episode. It was a little surprise. Of course, we conditioned everybody last year to, uh, Make it your Thanksgiving day tradition to enjoy some Turkey. And once you're loaded up with that trip to fan fire up the WWE network and uh, watch an old survivor series with us. And today we hit another one, the 25th anniversary of survivor series, 93. We've covered a lot of survivor series here on the show. Where would you rank this one? I mean, even this month we did 88, we did 98 last year. We did 87. Uh, I, I believe we've done, uh, 1997 as well. So. Out of all the Survivor Series, where does 93 fall? Uh, definitely not not in the top 10. Um, it was good. I mean, it was a good show, except for that doink match. <laughs> the, um, the Bushwhackers and Men on a Mission and that debacle. That was fairly terrible. It was entertaining, but it just wasn't. There wasn't that specialness to it. It felt like... It felt like a show that had a lot of scotch tape on it, and that's probably because I'm looking at it from a memory of. It did have a lot of scotch tape on it, man. We were moving things around and just trying to get the matches in the ring, get the show in the ring, and deliver something in some kind of quality. Uh, it was okay, but it wasn't our best effort by any stretch of the imagination. Well, it was our best effort to entertain you today. Hopefully everybody is having a great Black Friday and you had an awesome Thanksgiving. We'll be back at you next week. Uh, if you're around in Winston-Salem, rumor and innuendo is we might have some standing room only tickets available tomorrow at WrestleCade. Uh, do what you can to get to Winston-Salem because a who's who of professional wrestling is going to be in town for that show. You never know who might be our guest on that one. And don't forget to come check us out across the pond. It's going to be here before you know it. Only a handful of tickets remain. Uh, tickets are available now at brucepritchard.com. But Ireland, England, Scotland, hook it up, man. Make it happen. And don't forget, come January, Bruce and I are going to be in Colorado Springs and in Phoenix. You can also catch us in March in Connecticut. We're adding more dates all the time. And the rumor and innuendo, Bruce, is you might actually be going down under soon. Yeah, uh, hopefully next week we'll have a big announcement about uh, a solo couple shows in 
Australia in March. So be sure and tune in next week and we'll have some ticket information for you. And that should be very interesting to say the least. To say the least. We're looking forward to it. Hope you guys are too. Can't wait to be back here with you next week, right here on Something to Wrestle With. Shaka Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.